You are listening to Kickspot. Let's just kick back at the spot. All right, what's going on, guys? You are listening to Kickspot. I've got a few friends of mine here uh, who are doctors. Look at that smile right there. <laughs> who are doctors? What's going on? Um, uh, if you guys want to introduce yourselves. My name is Patrick Lamb. Um, I'm an anesthesiologist in Los Angeles, born and raised in San Jose, California. Adam Milam, also anesthesiologist uh, from Baltimore, Maryland, um, and been here for about four years. And how did you two meet? Uh, we met four years ago. Uh, we work at the same hospital in Los Angeles. You guys met here? Yeah. In yes. Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. What was your perception of Pat? Uh, you can tell Pat was uh, hardworking. Uh, <laughs> what is it? What's the smile? You got a smile on you. He face. was uh, definitely hardworking. He seemed a little bit uh, nervous when he first started. Okay. Um, I've seen that dissipate over the last couple of years. Um, but uh, just caring and hardworking. So uh, not qualities a lot of people have. All right. Yeah, my, my perception was grumpy. <laughs> I can see that. I think I think he had like a grump, like like the first orientation. He didn't, have, he didn't drink coffee or something. So then I was just like, we're not going to get along. But then it just it just changed. And he's one of my closest uh, friends in Los Angeles. So did you both start at the same time? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So as you guys are going through like the rough patches and stuff, would you guys vent about stuff? Or are you, yeah. allowed, are you allowed to? Definitely. Yeah. Uh, you can vent with each other. Uh, we don't use patient names and patient information, but... We yeah. can definitely talk about cases, talk about our experience uh, for a case or during the day. And I think that's pretty helpful to talk through uh, cases and experiences. So, Adam, let's, let's talk about um, medical school. Where, where did you go? So I went to Wayne State uh, in Detroit. Um, great place. I went to Detroit because it reminds me a lot of Baltimore. Um, great medical school. You get a lot of good clinical skills. You work at a county hospital uh, during your third and fourth year. Um, and they also gave me a good amount of scholarship money. So, did you? It's is, is Baltimore's uh, by water. Yes. And Detroit is obviously in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. So, did you miss a lot of like the outdoor type of things out there? No, they actually have a lot of outdoor activities in Michigan in general, but definitely in Detroit. There's a big public park that's right between Detroit and Windsor, Canada. It's called Belle Isle. Mm. And so you can bike and run around that, uh, skateboard, whatever you want. So there's a lot of uh, opportunities for outdoor activities in uh, Detroit as well. Mm. Awesome. And then, uh, Pat, where did you go? Where did you attend? I went to medical school at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Howard University? Why Howard University? Um, In college, I uh, became interested in health disparities, um, in particular hepatitis B. It impacted Asian and Pacific Islanders 10 times more than the general population. So then that means that um, a lot of, you know, especially immigrants coming from Asia, um, they need blood tests. And if they're negative, they need vaccinations. So especially like uninsured patients or like low income, we would we would uh, give free blood tests. We would do free screenings, free vaccinations for them. And then we would also educate them. You know, it's important to to, to get educated and, and to know about the disease and how to transmit it. We increase public awareness. So I, I, I had this interest. So then when I applied to medical school, I was looking for a medical school with a similar mission statement. And Howard had that mission statement. Um, it works with uh, it tar- Howard 
a lot of the a lot of the medical students who go there um, want to work with the less fortunate, mm. and uh, also address health disparities. So also, I wanted to leave California, go to the other side of the country. It was a big city, Washington D.C. I would recommend anyone to check it out, to visit, to live, and uh, it was it was a great time. I mean, huge difference between Berkeley, um, typically more, um, I would say, more Asians. Yeah. Um, compared to Howard University, yeah. uh, predominantly more black. Yeah. So um, I was able to pull up some statistics on Howard. Um, and this is just from 2017. As far as for admission, there's uh-huh. 9,392 students and 84.6% um, black. And then the next race after that um, is actually both Asian and white, uh, both each at 2.91%, and which makes it 273 Asian and black. So obviously a huge difference yeah. uh, there in culture. What was that experience like? Yeah. Um, so when I went to undergrad at UC Berkeley, it was probably 40%. The student body was probably 40%. And then so when I went to medical school, um, there's, the, our, I think in our class of 115 students, we only had like six to eight Asians. And the, you know, the majority were African or African-American. Um Besides the statistics, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel a difference. Um, um, going to that medical school felt, I, I felt like a family environment, very supportive. Um, a lot of the upperclassmen ingrained that and encouraged that, and faculty as well. So it really helped me um, succeed in medical school, medical school, pass all my boards, and um, helped me come, come out to LA afterwards. And Adam, why did you want to go into the medical field? Just, uh, I remember being 10 years old and knowing I wanted to be a doctor. I'm not sure where that came from. And then in high school, didn't really do much about that. And then in college, I started working at the hospital. So I worked at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. I worked in the emergency department, and I realized there that, hey, I wanted to go into medicine. I loved what I did there, worked with a lot of physicians, nurses, got to see a lot, interact with the patients. Um, And from then on, you know, I pursued medicine. Um, so I'm not sure where the initial spark came from, but it was definitely ingrained in me when I started working at Johns Hopkins. And nobody in your family, immediate family or anybody? In Nobody's the in medicine. I'm the first one uh, to become a doctor in the family. Um, so uh, it was a little difficult navigating, but uh, a good process overall. And would you say overall they're proud of you? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Pat? Yeah, I'm also the first doctor in my family. Um, yeah. They're they're very very, very proud. Um. <laughs> okay, <laughs> got really quiet after that. <laughs> they're they're proud. Uh, okay, are you sure? <laughs> I know. <laughs> like they like. He's like my parents told me to say that. <laughs> <laughs> like they you know they tell they tell their family uh, they tell our family members they volunteer information. Oh, he's doing this 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 this. Mm. Kind of like I, I think I think it's to show off or whatever. But yeah. Um. So. I, me personally, I don't know much about the medical industry, um, but when uh, Pat, you and I met, you said you were an anesthesiologist, and I don't even know if I'm currently saying that right, uh, but I really didn't know what that meant. So if you want to you know, educate the listeners on what that is. Yeah, so basically, uh, every time someone gets surgery, um, the day of the surgery, the morning of the surgery, or even the night before, it could be the most you know, anxious nerve-wracking 
for the family or even for the patients and also pain it could be painful so our job is to make them comfortable relieve their stress relieve their pain before during the surgery keep them asleep keep them pain free keep them comfortable and after when we wake them up so like during the whole um, surgical process we are their eyes and ears in the operating room and we keep them comfortable and alive yeah so uh, like Patrick said we uh, monitor and provide anesthetic care during the pre-operative operative when they're in the operating room and post-operative uh, period um, in the hospital and so people generally think that we're just usually in the operating room. That's what you see on like a Grey's Anatomy or any kind of medical TV show. But actually, we're all over the hospital. So if someone's delivering a baby, we place epidurals uh, for OB patients. Uh, we monitor critically ill patients in the ICU. We do uh, regional services where we do different kind of nerve blocks to help with different surgeries and uh, uh, pain procedures. So everywhere in the hospital, interact with every specialty. So, so going, going along with that, obviously during this time, uh, really sensitive uh, time, uh, I don't even remember the last time it's been this bad. I mean, I think the last time I remember would be swine flu, and I don't think it was as drastic um, a, as it is now. I mean, the, the word unprecedented is, is thrown out there a lot. Um, so obviously you both take a large part and a large role um, during COVID. So guide me through the life um, pre-COVID and then the transition during? Yeah, so pre-COVID, uh, as Patrick mentioned, we really uh, were focused on patients that were having elective surgery. So if someone came in for a hip replacement or a knee replacement, we provide the anesthetic care and then monitor the patient in the hospital. Uh, when COVID started, the pandemic was announced in March. Most hospitals canceled all elective cases. So you couldn't come in and get the hip uh replacement or that knee replacement and so we were really mobilized to help out with caring for COVID patients so uh, putting breathing tubes in placing them on ventilators and then monitoring the patients in the ICU so our role has uh, shifted a little bit since the pandemic started yeah um, I think our hospital did a great job um, reallocating resources and preparing for this pandemic um, especially when you know all the elective cases were canceled. That means that anesthesiologists um, weren't needed as much in the operating room because there's no work, there's no case, no surgeries. So then they were reassigned to different areas around the hospital to, hope with, to help with COVID patients, like uh, placing a breathing tube in a COVID patient, taking care of them in the ICU, um, placing you know intravascular access, um, in different vessels in their body in case they need blood, in case they need um, fluids, in case they need medications to help their blood pressure. And uh, so I think it was a good good use of anesthesiologists around the hospital. So you don't typically do that then? So we work in the ICU. Um, there's intensivists. You can do that specialized training after you do your residency program. Um, so a portion of us do work in the ICU, but on a day-to-day -day basis, we're mainly in the operating room. And so when COVID hit and, uh, you know, we have a lot of COVID patients, so there's an influx of patients, we shifted and, you know, assisted with patients in the ICU. We're doing more airways just because these it's a respiratory disease and people need a breathing tube. People need to be placed on a ventilator. So we're helping a, a lot more with that. Yeah. So, so I'm going to give you some statistics. Um, uh, with uh, with COVID, 
Currently in the US, there's 1.5 million confirmed cases, 263,000 luckily recovered out of the 1.5, and then uh, 89,000 deaths. And here in LA County, you have 36,000 confirmed and about 1,800 deaths. And I'm sure as you're uh, going to school, you have um, you know different friends in different areas. Uh, so what are you hearing uh, in their locations? Is it similar to here in LA County? Is it different? What are you hearing? Yeah, so I went to medical school, as I mentioned, in Detroit. Um, and Michigan got hit harder uh, than California. And oh, so... Wow. Uh, Maryland as well, and Baltimore, where I'm from. Uh, and then I have a lot of friends in New York. So those places were hit pretty hard, and they had an influx of patients all at once. So there were problems with PPE, problems with space uh, for patients, uh, limited number of ventilators. So we didn't have the surge that other places had, and we actually were fortunate enough to have a lot of resources. Uh, but places, like I said, Detroit, Chicago, Baltimore, really New York, of course, really... Uh, had a lot of patients and had a difficult time trying to manage the number of patients. Yeah, in California, I think uh, the we were like the second um, state to to get like the first case after like Washington. Yeah. But then the surge happened after New York, so I think the governor closed down the state earlier. You know, stay at home orders, um, and then. We haven't seen the surge, and then and then our hospital, you know, became much more prepared because they saw what was going on in other states, and then so, you know, at, at our hospital we have like COVID designated units, we have COVID designated, you know, ICU teams, we have COVID designated, you know, ventilators, nursing staff, and then so we have all these resources that were fortunately we didn't have to use all of them, and reach that and like reach or exceed that capacity, so we didn't see the surge. Uh, like New York saw, and I think we're fortunate to to have seen that. So, uh, being at this hospital, in in my eyes, it's one of the most popular hospitals. So, obviously, in my opinion, resources are are more abundant. But I'm sure you've heard of cases where there's not enough masks. You, Adam, you talked about ventilators not being accessible. What is it? What is that experience like? Not having those masks, and people are having to make masks like it, it, within the hospital. Yeah, so in the beginning, a lot of people, uh, a lot of hospitals just didn't have the resources for the influx of patients. Fortunately here, we always had enough PPE, uh, but in other places I've seen people making their own masks, reusing masks. In the hospitals. In the hospitals, uh, figuring out how to sterilize masks so you can reuse them. Uh, so that was a, definitely an issue. I think the manufacturers have caught up now and that that's not as big of a problem as it was in the beginning. But when we had that huge influx of patients, we, no one just had the allocation to uh, of those masks and other PPE to handle the search. Yeah, it's just great to see how like it's just great to see how selfless you know U.S. like the Americans are. Um, you know, we have nurse nursing who are who are making masks in their home and sending them out to New York or Washington to to help them out. So whatever you know can get the job done and. It, it's definitely very helpful, especially in you know recent low resource areas. So, so people talk about the the new norm. We've talked about you know your, the previous uh, pre COVID, um, you know during COVID. Now, what does the new norm look like? Not just in the the medical industry, but as far as for everybody outside the medical industry, in your opinion. 
Yeah, I think social distancing will be the norm moving forward, at least for this year. Um, I think we'll likely see another surge as states are starting to reopen. And so I think there will be uh, certain precautions put in place. I mean, if you look at some of the pictures um, in some of the Asian countries, they have dividers in between the treadmills and the ellipticals. And we may oh, see. Do. Yeah. I have not seen that. <laughs> we may see some things like that. Um, and then a lot of things we realize that we don't have to do in person. Um, a lot of telehealth is happening and other um, things are happening that's not done in person. That meeting that you thought you had to go to in person, you don't, you don't need to. Zoom is okay or a phone call is okay. So I think things will shift um, slowly, but I think they will shift. Yeah, like wearing masks everywhere you go. Um, better hygiene. So more, this, more responsibility. Yeah, so in the state of California, obviously, there's there's different phases that the governor's um, initiating um, as as we open up. Um, but with what you're seeing currently, I know there's new cases with now kids getting some type of, um, I don't know, uh, I don't know if it's called disease or some type of. Yeah, uh, some kind of inflammatory response. We don't exa- yeah. exactly know what it is. So uh, that's obviously ha- happening in New York. I don't know if you know of any cases here. Maybe it's in the Children's Hospital. We just don't know. Um, but what what should everybody be doing is, besides social distancing? I mean, me going into a restaurant, for example, like what what is the response? What should I be doing? Like, should I be going into restaurants? Like, I, I don't even know personally. Sure. So I would advise against uh, leaving your house unless you have to. So, of course, some people have to go to work and it's jobs that they have to go to. Uh, you have to leave the house for grocery stores, leave your house to exercise. Uh, but until we have a better grasp on the virus, until we have a vaccine, I would stay at home as much as possible. Do your social distancing. Like Patrick said, uh, wear your mask, hand sanitizer, frequent washing of hands. Uh, but we just don't know enough about the virus and we don't have a vaccine at this point. Uh, so it's tough. Uh to, to start to reopen. Yeah, and like whatever, you know, whenever phase three, for example, in, in California will happen, um, they're going to slowly open restaurants. But then when they open restaurants, they're going to they're gonna take precautions. Like they're not going to open like every single table at the restaurant for everyone. And, you know, eventually we'll go back to normal. So uh, I, what I've been reading is that there's, uh, when, when, the restaurants are going to open and there's going to be obviously different policies and procedures, not yeah. just from uh, the customer's perspective, from the employee standpoint. Um, they have to go through new training, um, how to handle customers. Um, and obviously it's going to be very, very sensitive. And there's probably a lot of listeners that are also listening to this and saying, you know, screw that. You know, we got to get the economy going. And we're already noticing that around the nation, uh, different states playing a different part um, in that. And so obviously come from the medical background you're seeing this firsthand so i could see that perspective of you know we, we just got a social distance uh don't go out there and then from the other perspective for the uh, capitalists that really want to you know get the economy going i could understand that that perspective as well too so very very different i think this has really set a very big divide sure um within uh perspectives which kind of sucks because during this time we should be unifying and trying to figure out a solution to really move forward and not create that divide. Um, but I appreciate you talking about what, uh, as far as for the medical side, yeah. what your perspective um, is. You are listening to Kickspot. 
You are listening to Kickspot. And we are back. Um, and uh, so I, I want to ask you to um, actually. I just want to give you to my perspective on the medical industry. Obviously, I didn't go into that realm, um, and I have my little, uh, you know, skepticism and, and stuff like that. Um, and this is not just uh, as I've been. Um, talking to a few of my other friends, there's a small percentage of people that also think this way as well too. So it was a little reassuring knowing that, but then also um, hopefully you're able to kind of influence me the other direction because obviously you both are my friends and <laughs> I don't want to make the medical industry look bad. But uh, my perception, so a, a little story. So I've never really liked the medical industry um, just because back in the day, or and I still get this now, I used to get these big migraines, and um, these migraines would get so bad that I would I would lose my vision. And during my sophomore year in college, I took the time to um, go to five different doctors, and all five of them gave me a different diagnosis. Um, I started drinking coffee during that time because one of the diagnoses was. Uh, to drink co- a cup of coffee a day. They had let me know that there's um, calcium that constantly goes into my brain and in order for it to close, there's like holes in the brain or something, In order for and calcium goes in, in and out, in order for it to close, if you drink coffee, it, cl- um, it closes it. So you don't get a bunch of calcium, that's what causes the migraine. I didn't really understand that concept, but that's exactly what they told me. And so I've been addicted to coffee ever since. Um, that got me a coffee in a... A, uh, one of those hot cups. This is like an iced coffee, which is really weird that he gave it to me in this um, little cup. But um, I've never drank coffee before that. But I've just I've just been very very skeptical about the diagnosis, and I read a lot of data, uh, not just in the medical industry. I just like data in general, and I've always understood that there's no guarantee uh, within a diagnosis, and it's all about the data that's been created from the past right so what is your perception i mean like i said a few of my friends have also uh, expressed the same thing what is your perception on people that think like me yeah so nothing is black and white and unfortunately for some things we can't give you an exact diagnosis so we come up with what's called a differential diagnosis so we can come up with the top five things we think it could be based on your symptoms based on labs based on imaging and so after that, we try to rule out different diagnoses based on the information we have. Um, unfortunately, things like headaches and different pain disorders, it's not, you know, black and white. You, can not, you can't always come up with an exact diagnosis um, compared to something like a broken bone where you can see it on imaging and you know, hey, that's a broken bone. Uh, so sometimes it's really difficult to, to finalize a diagnosis and I'm really sorry to hear about your experience. Hopefully we can refer you to some people that can help you out with that. <laughs> get um, some help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with the headache. I mean, migraine it's, can be debilitating. And if it's causing you visual problems, you know, yeah. love to see you get that addressed. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it, it, someone could lose trust in, in the medical field if, you know, they're going to see five different specialists and they're getting different information from all five, five different specialists and not, nobody, is giving you something that works and actually helps and remove the pain, right? So, um, unfortunately, sometimes there are things that are rare or 
don't work for patients and based on our judgment and based on previous examples and what we learn um that's what we base all our uh management with yeah and i think what what doesn't help is how expensive medical bills are um and not it wasn't just the, the amount of coffee that i was drinking that i was spending money on um i was diagnosed um like a syringe so i'd have to do a self-insertion um, whenever I would start feeling or start losing the vision and I was spending so much money on that and none of that helped. I still lost my vision. I still had a big migraine. Um, I was sensitive to light. So if there's any doctors out there that could diagnose, I'm doing a diagnosis right now, obviously. <laughs> so, you know, give me some, hit me up on Instagram and then, you know, yeah. give me the actual reason. But um, it's just so disheartening knowing that I'm spending all this money and nothing has helped and i and i'm sure there's a lot of people out there currently right now that that feel the same exact way that the medical industry is just so expensive um you know healthcare for all hasn't been the most effective in a lot of cases um and so that's one of the big reasons why i also lose trust and if i knew the actual doctor and they didn't charge me for example and they spent more on quality versus quantity then I think I would be more inclined to listen and, and figure things out, kind of like a personal coach. Sure. But doctors don't necessarily have all that time. They still have, you know, millions and millions of people that they have to see as well. So I'm kind of in a, in a catch-22. You know? Cost is definitely an issue. Um, in the United States, we spend the most on healthcare than anywhere in the world, and we don't even have the best health outcomes. Uh, so trying to contain costs has been a big issue. Um, I don't think we're getting any better at it. Um, so I think we need to change the entire structure moving forward. Um, but just so you know, all the money is not going to the doctors, uh, but we do need to improve uh, improve that aspect of medicine. Yeah, that aspect is slowly you know, shifting. Um, before, a lot of payments were paid by quantity. So if you do you know, 10, 20 procedures, you'll get paid more than if you did five procedures. But... Uh, the shift right now is for reimbursements at least um, is to quality so and outcomes so if you if you improve a patient's outcome you would get paid if you don't then you wouldn't get paid so the importance now has shifted more to more mm. to outcomes based it's kind of like a yelp review so i give you a good yelp review then you get paid if i give you zero then you're probably losing out on customers exactly Oh, that's interesting. And that's that is that a recent that they started doing that or very recent. So taking patient outcomes, patient satisfaction, um, it's now like yeah, a it's, bundle it's, payment. It's it's more than like a it's more than a Yelp review because it also takes like objective outcomes hmm. plus patient satisfaction plus. And then, yeah. Is that just at this hospital? No, no, no it's 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 all us, over. Yeah. Okay. I, I think it came with like Obama. It came with Obamacare. Yes. Oh wow. So it gives me a little bit more confidence. I mean, like I said, the last time I, I think the last time I went to. Yeah. So like that, that would prevent like somebody f uh, from suggesting like a necessary surgery, mm. right? That wouldn't help you, but I'm still going to do it to make money. Mm. Well, that, that's good to hear. Um, I want to transition into the myths and facts about doctors. Okay. And then um, I just want to tell you the premise. It, it doesn't have to be about you too could be about your friends um, or people that you know of. If it's negative, then it could be about other people. <laughs> but um, the first one I have on here is doctors make a lot of money. Myth 
or fact? I think I think uh, it's a myth. We eventually um, doctors can you know live a comfortable lifestyle, but you know debt at a medical school six figures on average. Um, everyone who goes into the medical field, they're delayed in making money like four to ten years, depending on how long the, tr- the residency or the, how long the, how long the residency is, depending on the specialty. So compared to your peers who started working at 22, they've, they've been making money since they're 22. Whereas let's say we start at 30, that's eight, we're eight years behind. So if you look at like the cumulative, how much money um, each of us make, the 22 year old you know, would beat us and also um, taxes. I would agree with everything Patrick said. We can live a comfortable lifestyle uh, with the compensation that we get, but definitely aren't rich, don't make you know a ton of money. Um, do a lot of schooling and have a lot of debt um, and can live a comfortable lifestyle. Yeah, we're, we're not going to be on like the same level as like a ball player or like a musician like yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, why do you think that's a perception though? The doctors make a lot of money. Because I guess it's a repu- re- reputable career. Um, you become like an expert in a field. Um, maybe back in the day too, back in the day, Doctor, like the doctors made more um, compared to these days as well. Do you think that's still the perception? Of course, yeah, that's definitely. Okay. If that is the perception, let me ask you to this question. Have you ever told someone that you liked that you were a doctor knowing that perception just to kind of get it, get an in? Maybe once or twice. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean... We went through so much training, right? So I'm proud that I'm a doctor. And you know, sometimes if like, I, I usually tr- try to not on the, like for a stranger or like on a first date, but you know, eventually that's something important that two people would talk about. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because like the perception of a doctor to a lot of people is like, you make a crap ton of money and then you look at somebody like let's say a garbage man but garbage men make a lot of money like if you look at a government website mm-hmm. they actually do make a lot of money and really in my opinion there's really two ways to be wealthy in america is you do things that some people do things that uh, uh people can't do or you do things that uh people don't want it things that you, you know other people don't want to do which sure. a lot of people don't really want to be a garbage man and so yeah. i have a lot of respect in that industry but it's funny because if I was a garbage man and went up to somebody and said, hey, I'm a garbage, garbage man, like, I don't think that people would be like, oh, but hey, I'm in debt. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a doctor. People are just drooling over that. So it's very interesting, the perception yeah, that, that people have. Um, so number two, doctors are smart. I would say we're fairly smart. Uh, we go through a lot of schooling. Um, as Patrick mentioned, four years of undergrad, four years of medical school, and then training anywhere from three to nine years. And so um, you develop a lot of knowledge, learn a lot of uh, certain skill set, um, and we're learning all the time. Yeah, I think you you need to have some some uh, baseline intelligence to be able to learn all the material in, in uh, medical school and study and pass all your uh, licensing exams. So. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I, I um, also think that 
there's constant education that that is happening yeah. within the medical industry there's things that come up and change all the time especially with covid i'm sure it wasn't a let's stop learning uh concept it was obviously we need to learn so we could start helping other people um and that's uh, another way that you can be successful uh, not just in the medical field just just in general just keep constantly yeah. educating yourself so you do have to have you obviously you have to be smart to be able to do that too and be consistent um third myth or fact doctors hate eastern medicine i think i think that's a myth hate is a strong word <laughs> um, dislike there are there are uh you know prefer there are benefits to some eastern medicine that that studies have been done and in conjunction with western medicine it could help a patient um but a lot of the times a lot of the eastern medicine passed by passed down by your grandparents your great parents great grandparents there hasn't been a lot of like we don't know the ingredients in you know let's say a plant and then there hasn't been a lot of studies uh, like ran, ran, randomized controlled trials to show its efficacy and there could be some interactions that with western medicine so it's really important you know whenever a patient sees a doctor to just let them know this is what i'm taking could there be certain things um, that could interact with the western medicine do you think that that, that there's data being collected though so like you know in, in korea if you want uh, if you go to a doctor and they diagnose something that you you actually go to a pharmacist and you give them your your prescription yeah. it's not necessarily a pill but it's herbs yeah. you know they grind up all like these like deer antlers or yeah. you know like feet you know and then they mix it and then it's like a herbal drink but do you think that there's data out there um out out in asia versus in the us to really help yeah i haven't seen any widely published uh like patrick said randomized controlled trials with a lot of these things um so we don't think that they're necessarily harmful. We just don't know their benefit, their efficacy, like Patrick said. And so we have a lot of patients that take a wide variety of medications that we don't prescribe. And we're generally okay with that. We, like he said, we just need to know what medications they're taking. Some of them can have uh, reactions or interactions with the medications we prescribe or cause increased risk of bleeding. Uh, but generally they aren't harmful, but we don't know what their benefit is. Another example is like in our field, um, I've seen some hospitals offer uh, acupuncture to help with pain. That's like an Eastern medicine practice that you know may help if combined with Western medicine. But acupuncture isn't necessarily accepted by all insurance companies. So I find that pretty interesting because if you have a bunch of doctors here saying that acupuncture actually works, I would assume that the insurance companies 100% would back that up. So why is it, in your opinion, that, that insurance companies don't 100% allow acupuncture? Uh, I don't think it's widely accepted. Some, some hospitals may. Some, some, hospitals, some hospitals may offer it if it's like pay out of pocket. Um, so I think it's just like widely accepted. If more, more data comes out that shows this is effective, you know, then Medicare and Medi-Cal would you know, get on board and reimburse accordingly. All right, number four, doctors are healthy, myth or fact? Yeah, people always say that doctors and nurses are the worst patients. 
And so I think uh, we can make assumptions about our health and we uh, don't always go to the doctor ourselves. Uh, so I think in general that we try to focus on our health, but we don't always practice what we tell our own patients. Yeah. I think it also depends on the doctors. I know healthy doctors. I know unhealthy doctors. We're both very happy, healthy, but I also know people who you know, work too much, work too many nights, don't get enough sleep. Yeah. Eat a lot, eat a lot of junk food. Yeah, unhealthy. Yeah, you would think that you wouldn't eat a lot of junk food because you're a doctor. You never know what's available at 3 a.m. where you're on yeah. a shift and you have, you know, two minutes to eat. And the um, only thing open is like a vending machine. machine yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I remember going into a, a fitness center one time and this guy, as I was walking in, was eating, eating a Big Mac. <laughs> and I didn't know he was a personal trainer. And so he comes up to me and he says, hey, do you need a personal trainer? <laughs> and I'm like, not after you ate that Big Mac. <laughs> yeah. that, that's interesting. I'm sure that turns you off. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I just, yeah. I, I couldn't do it. Um, he looked great from the outside, but what you put in internally, I just I just wasn't about that. Because yeah. you could fix stuff. It's like, it's like going to a dermatologist with bad skin. Or like, if you're a dermatologist? If you're a dermatologist. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, an optometrist, I guess. If you have bad teeth. Uh, bad bad eyes yeah i mean like the the health thing i i um correlate that to i guess the, the lack of sleep sometimes um you know as adam you have a, a pager on you for some reason <laughs> <laughs> uh, such an old school concept um but uh you know people that have to go into emergency just in the middle of the night don't necessarily get um great sleep in general so um in my perspective in that situation you're not necessarily helping your health out too much, which is unfortunate. Uh, the last one, myth or fact, doctors are hard to date. And it got quiet. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it depends on the doctor. A lot of the times, you know, we have unpredictable schedules. Um, we can have, you know, three cases starting at seven, but we don't know when the last case ends. So we could, you know, have a date plan at six and then have to cancel and then um, so I think I think just our work schedule, unpredictability, long hours in the hospital. I mean, this can this can you know affect spouses even at home. You know, talking to a lot of people in my um, specialty, you know, don't like can't come over dinner, can't can't you know go to your kids' basketball game. So I think you know just communicating. You know, th this could happen. Uh, this unpredictability unpredictability can happen, and then having a partner that understands. And supports um, your career I think it's important I would agree with everything Patrick said it's really the unpredictability of our schedule and like he said I've missed weddings funerals dates anything you can think of just because you never know where you're going to leave the hospital you never know when something's going to pop up um, and change your entire schedule change yeah. your entire day and so uh, of course communication around that is important but some people just aren't understanding of that of the time constraints of the of your job so do you think two people that um are in the medical industry that are dating is that pretty difficult because it's all it seems like there's a lot of different schedules um i, I could see that as you guys are speaking yeah the time overlap can be difficult but i think it would probably be better understanding uh because yeah. you, you you know that We've gone through the same stuff yeah, training exactly I feel like the divorce rate for two doctors is pretty high for that reason, or like two surgeons yeah, for so that reason. 
So I um I was asking a few of my friends, men and women, um and uh, the industry that they say um as far as for people uh, th- that's hard to date uh-huh. um is a medical industry, uh-huh. uh and it's, it's a lot of what what you're speaking about, but also uh, the lack of trust um maybe maybe just from a personal perspective uh-huh. like within themselves, but infidelity um happening. So I decided to look up the industries that have the top in infidelity rate and um actually number two was the medical industry um which, yeah which was um actually five percent men and 23 percent women um and and obviously that i don't know if it's obvious but it's a little skewed because there's more women okay. in the medical industry um and ironically enough uh, the first is uh trade workers the ones <laughs> that that actually go into people's homes so plumbers and electricians, uh, 29% men and 4% women. Yeah. yeah. But so, so, so a higher per- percentage of female doctors are cheating. <laughs> I like how he's like, Hey, I'll take, like that. I'll take five over 23. Um, but yeah, I mean, you have more women in the medical industry, so yeah. it, it is, it is really skewed. So if I was to kind of weigh that out, yeah. I would say it's pretty even, um, in that nature. Um, but would you, would you, what are your thoughts on that? Can you um, see, can you see that happening? Do you think that that's that's top? Yeah, is it top three, top two? I th- I could see I could see it happening. Um, you know, we spend so much time in the hospital, right? And then you're away from your you know significant other, and then you know feelings can develop, relationships can develop with your staff. You're spending so much face time with them um, every single day. You come to work. Um, I know I know doctors who you know are committed. Uh, I know other doctors who cheat, so I think it just depends on the doctor. Yeah, definitely. Uh, like Patrick said, you can develop relationships with the people you work with just because you spend so much time with them. Uh, you can relate to them. You can decompress with them. And so you spend in 24 hours at once with them. Um, it can be easily easy to develop a relationship with them. They can start off as friendship and develop into something more. Um, so I could see it happening. Yeah. And, and that's not just in the medical industry. That's that's in every industry. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that when I asked about myth or fact, it was either one way or the other, and you both answered the safest answers. <laughs> I, I could see that happening. You know, it wasn't a hey, it's fact or, you know, it, it's it's a myth. But great yeah. job. <laughs> great job. It's like if I was to talk about politics, it's like, you know, I could see this perspective or that perspective. Exactly. I mean, so, I'm I'm always speaking the truth. <laughs> what I see. Um, well, uh, I appreciate you two t- uh, spending the time here at the hospital. I know um, you guys were working, and and you, you really made the time, and you still have your pager on you. Yeah. Um, so any minute, I was afraid that that thing was gonna go off um, <laughs> during this the show. But I really appreciated that. That's a good thing. Obviously, yeah. that means nothing's happening so mm-hmm. far, and or you have people obviously working that are able to handle things and, and control things. So I really appreciate you taking the time, but is there any other last uh, messages you'd like to, um, you know, tell the audience? So we're in the midst of a pandemic that we don't know much about. Uh, People are still becoming infected, contracting the virus. People are still dying. So uh, just practice best habits that we know about. Social distancing, uh, frequent hand washing, hand sanitizer, um, and try to stay at home as much as possible until we know more about the virus until we have a, a vaccine uh, to help prevent the spread. 
Yeah, um, to piggyback off uh, Adam, you know, stay safe. Um, there's free testing sites in LA now. Um, you you could probably link, put that link up for those interested in testing. They're all they're even testing people without symptoms. Um, also, be cognizant of you know the higher risk groups. Um, you know the older the older patient population, and also people with comorbidities like high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, respiratory respiratory problems. So just stay safe and uh, thanks for having us. Uh, do you guys want to, if people want to reach out, do you guys have any social media? I'm on uh, Instagram and Twitter, both the same username, AJ Milam, M-I-L-A-M, M-D-P-H-D. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of the few who do not have an Instagram, so you can find me on Facebook, Patrick H. Lamb. Might as well say MySpace if you. Oh, uh, my, MySpace is dead. <laughs> wow. Tom, Tom from MySpace is like. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for listening, everybody, and stay tuned for the next show. Have a great day. Stay safe. Thank you for listening to Kickspot.